Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, today we have a really special episode on tap for you. Um, it's it's different than our usual sort of interview format. Um, back at the end of March of this year, uh, we had an opportunity to host an event with Andy Crouch. Uh, many of you know Andy. He's one of the leading thinkers in um, the church today. Uh, Andy is the partner for theology and culture at an organization called Praxis, which is uh, an organization that works as a creative engine for what they call redemptive entrepreneurship. Um, they're doing incredible stuff. And he also serves on the board of Fuller Theological Seminary and the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Uh, he was an editor and producer of Christianity Today for many years. Um, and he's the author of uh, several books. Um, his latest latest book, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, in 2017, uh, is called The TechWise Family. And the book has had tremendous impact um, on a national and even global scale. And in the book, Andy um, asks the question, you know, in what ways have we uh, taken technology to its extremes and placed it in positions of influence and power in our own lives and in our families and in our homes in ways that are detrimental to um, the spiritual life and in particular the life of uh, following Jesus and being formed into the sorts of people that God has called us to be. Um, I've read the book a couple of times. We've actually taught a class on the book um, here at our church where I serve. And so it, it's had tremendous impact both in my life personally as well as um, in our community here at Vintage Faith Church um, where I serve on staff. Uh, so back in March, we invited Andy to come out and share his thoughts, applying some of the principles as well as brand new ideas um, from uh, his, his research and all of his work for TechWise Family, uh, applying it to the life of the local church. And so we hosted an event here at our church in the coffee shop that we have here at our church uh, called the TechWise Church. And in the event, Andy um, dug in deep and said some really provocative and inspiring and challenging and I think incredibly necessary stuff uh, regarding how um, the technological age and the digital age and digital technologies uh, are undoubtedly influencing and impacting our ecclesiology and the way we think about what it means to be the church. And so um, this episode of the podcast is going to be um, the lecture that Andy gave at that event. Uh, it's about 40 minutes or so, um, but here's what you need to know. We also filmed the event, and the event itself was more than Andy's lecture. We also had a chance. Um, I, I got to sit down and do a little bit of question and response with Andy, and then we opened it up um, to the people in the live audience that evening uh, to interact with Andy as well. So um, the question and response and the live audience Q&A is not on this podcast episode. Uh, this episode is just the lecture that Andy gave that evening. But if you're interested in hearing the question and response and the live audience Q&A as well, um, we are going to post a video, like an hour and a half long video of the entire event, the entire evening, uh, including this lecture you're about to hear on the podcast. Um, the entire event will, uh, a video of it will be on our website, 
Um, so you can just go to regenerationproject.org and find the full video if you want to get um, the whole thing. And honestly, visually, it's like uh, really fun just to watch the thing unfold. There's in fact, there's some interactive stuff that you'll hear Andy do on this podcast episode, um, but it's much more powerful if you actually watch it on video. Um, and you'll know what I mean when you listen to this episode. But so that, that would be my encouragement. Listen to this episode on the podcast and then go to our website and check out the video and uh, watch some of the question and response time at the end. It was a, um, it was really, really helpful for me and uh, really provocative, helpful stuff. So uh, without further ado, here is Andy Crouch talking about the TechWise Church. Enjoy. I, I wrote a book called The TechWise Family. It's about how to... Uh, not how to become Amish, uh, although I recommend you consider that, but uh, how to actually keep technology from robbing us of the best things about family life while using it in the ways that it's meant to be used. Uh, the subtitle talks about putting technology in its proper place. And then Dan and company called and said, well, would you come talk about how this applies to church? And so what I'm gonna share with you is my best attempt at this. Uh, I, this, is not, this is brand new stuff in many ways, especially what I'm gonna wrap around the edges of this talk. Um, I am still thinking this through, but I think it's really important because first of all, I think there are three areas where if we don't exercise a lot of care with technology, um, it's going to have effects that we don't anticipate and don't want. One is in the home, um, but the other two are the most formative environments for us as human beings, and that is uh, the school, I actually am very concerned that we are not thinking through the introduction of technology and the education of kids and even uh, college students for that matter. Um, but the third is church because the three places where we're really formed to be persons are home, school, and church. And not everybody goes to school. Not everyone has a church, everyone has a home, but we would hope that everyone would eventually come into a church family. And in many ways, the challenges that technology poses in our family life of our biological families, our adopting families, our home families, are very similar to those that it poses to the church. Um, however, there are some specific things I'm especially worried about. I, and uh, maybe I'll start not so much with what, what, what I'm worried about, but what I hope for. And it has to do with this thing that I've come to call the posterity gospel, which is not the same thing as the prosperity gospel. So there's this thing called the prosperity gospel, which is the idea that God is a giant slot machine. And if you get the right combination, you'll be rich if you kind of pull his levers the right way. And God doesn't want us to be rich in that way. But there is a biblical way of talking about what God wants, and it does involve um, a kind of fullness of life that the word prosperity once meant, not just being rich. And I think the best word for it is posterity. This is a word that means your legacy. It means uh, what you leave behind, what's left of your life, what is left to the world from your life. And the posterity gospel is that God does not intend to bless us just for ourselves but actually intends to bless us for many, many generations. The, the most fundamental blessing of the Hebrew Bible in some ways is may you see your children's children. And it's this vision of living in a land that God gave his people, that's the Hebrew Bible's vision, 
um, that you're able to hand on. And as you've worked on it, as you've cared for it, it's become more and more fruitful. As you've lived in obedience to the God who gave you that land and made the whole world, it's become more and more fruitful. And so your children's children are going to dwell in that land and, and possess it and be able to bless God in their own way. And this to me is a big live existential question for the church today. Will we see our children's children in the, in the life of the community of faith uh, in our world? And we know that there's a lot of disaffiliation happening from the church, especially among people who have had kind of thin relationships with churches. And there's a lot of anxiety about um, will, will our grandchildren, uh, will there be a church for our grandchildren? And it's accelerated and intensified by the rapid pace of technological change that's happening around us that seems to make a lot of what church has meant uh, to start to seem very quickly irrelevant, stale, tired, not likely to appeal even to our own kids, let alone our kids' kids. And in this environment, it's very tempting to think, well, then what we have to do is adopt all this new technology as fast as we can so that we keep the kids. <laughs> I actually think this is not gonna work for many reasons, and I don't think it's necessary in the way that we often think it's necessary. And I, I really wanna ask the question, what will it look like for us right now, in the midst of this technological age, to build something that will last to our children's children and will be just as powerful and vital and vigorous and life-giving and salvation bringing to the world as it was for our parents' parents? I really think this is the horizon we're supposed to think about, not just our little slice, but taking what was given to generations before us and passing it on. What will that take? And how does technology fit into this? Well, technology is the biggest wave that has ever hit human society. It is, uh, it is the biggest tsunami that has ever rolled in to human life. And since I was coming to Santa Cruz, I was thinking about waves and uh, the ocean. Now, I live in a part of the country that does not have good waves. <laughs> there is an ocean somewhere out there, but it's very placid. I don't think people surf very much off the uh, shore of New Jersey. I guess Long Island they do. Uh, so I know nothing about surfing. So I thought it was the perfect metaphor to start with here. Um, but from what I understand, uh, there's these two things that are both true. And one is that waves come through uh, any body of water, right? And the wave, uh, you can see it perhaps coming in the distance. It arrives, it builds up, crashes, lands. It's a very dramatic thing. Uh, but the really funny thing is that while the wave moves, the water actually doesn't very much. The wave propagates through the water. But the water, any particular little thing in the water actually stays in the same place, which you can see when people swim out to maybe catch a wave, the, the person themselves, anything bobbing on that wave, they will move, move up and down a little bit, but they don't come into the land, uh, at least not, not usually. Like as the wave goes by, they may move up a little bit. The wave moves, but they don't move. The wave is very visible. It's very powerful. Uh, sometimes it can crash with tremendous force, but uh, it propagates, arrives, dissipates, and disappears, and it's gone, and the ocean stays. Which do we want the church to be like? Do we want the church to be like a very impressive wave that kind of comes in, everybody sees it, maybe you catch it, maybe it's very impressive, but then it lands, and then it's gone? Or is the church meant to be more like the ocean? 
that no matter what is coming by, there's this kind of depth of reality and, and fixed nature to our life that whatever waves come by in the culture around us, in the story of human history, there's this thing that just stays there. And yeah, it may bob up and down a little bit, but the waves essentially come and go, the ocean remains. What would it be like for the church to be the ocean rather than the wave? Now, most waves kind of come in, they land at the same place on the shore, they recede as this cycle. But there are these waves generated, obviously, by earthquakes way out in the deep that we call tsunamis. And I do think that this 100-year story of technology is a tsunami in human history. When a tsunami comes in, it's not just one more wave on the beach. It, come, it, it reshapes the coastline. It can interfere in very profound ways with human life on, along the coast, as we've seen tragically in our own time and in recent years in Indonesia and Japan and elsewhere. Um, and technology is not just one more little you know, ripple. <laughs> it really is reshaping things. But I want to suggest to you tonight, it is just a wave. It's not the ocean. The ocean hasn't changed. Uh, the nature of human beings hasn't changed. The call of the church as God's people hasn't fundamentally changed. Even as this massive thing is swept in and changed in some ways almost everything about the landscape around us, there's this deeper ocean we need to be paying attention to. So will we get so caught up in chasing the wave that when it crashes and dissipates, we will crash and dissipate with it? Or will we live a different kind of life that's almost at right angles to that thing so that whatever happens in the long story of technology that's just getting started, the church of Jesus Christ and the reality of the gospel will still be present? I think that's the core question. So I want to try to help us understand this tsunami because it is a really big deal, what's happened in the last 100 years. Now, when I talk about technology, one of the first things people often say is, um, the technology is nothing new. We've had tools for all of human history. And so now we just have a bunch of new tools. And I don't think this is actually quite right. So I want to try to give you a picture um, of what technology is that's different from what all of human history had before. The story actually starts just, I would say, with people, persons, human beings, who are put in the world, uh, Christians believed by God, with all these capacities to make a difference in the world. And from the very beginning, we human beings aren't satisfied with our own capacities in ourselves. Uh, so at least uh, maybe very early on, uh, it seems like Adam and Eve were happy just tending the flowers naked. Uh, but right after the fall, there's this dissatisfaction that sets in, clothing arrives. And having uh, visited the nude beaches of Greece, I have discovered what a gift clothing actually is to 98% of the human race. It actually turns out it is much better that we uh, extend ourselves. We don't show up just in who we are, but most of us, it is to the great blessing of others, that we come and we add things to ourselves, not just our clothes, but all kinds of extensions of human life. So we aren't just gathering in a clearing in the forest here. We're, we're in a building. We've extended ourselves by building a space. I'm not just using my voice tonight to speak to you. I'm using amplification. And all of these are examples in different ways of what I would call tools. And tools are just things that human beings develop that extend human capacities in the world in some way, make us more capable. So even clothing makes us capable of going into climates we couldn't survive in on our own, allow us to extend, in biblical terms, our dominion over the world. And tools are uh, just part of the human story from day one because they allow us to do what we were meant to do, 
to make something of the world, to make something beautiful, useful, good, true, and out of the world. For all of human history, we've developed more and more tools. So let me just give uh, maybe two examples of, of tools that, uh, that we developed. One will be very obvious, the other might not come to mind. Um, if you need to fasten things, you've got two things, you want them to go together, maybe two pieces of wood. I suppose there's a way to fasten things just with natural products around you, maybe vines or something like that, and your bare hands. If you're Robinson Crusoe or, or someone on a PBS reality show that's gone terribly wrong or something, you're like stranded on an island, I'm sure you can fasten things with no tools. But if I give you a hammer and nails, uh, you can fasten much more effectively. And so many of us are sitting around tables that someone probably used something like a hammer to fasten these pieces of wood together they took their, their hand, their arm, their eyesight, their mind, and applied it to hammer something. Very simple tool. Even simpler tool. We're in a room, uh, I'm on stage, maybe it's just me, it feels a little on the warm side uh, in the room, and so what am I going to do to cool myself? Well, I could just use my own body. I could fan myself with my hand, right? But uh, over in the sanctuary, I happen to notice here at Vintage Faith, um, as you go in, uh, we have a tool for you in case it gets a little hot in the sanctuary, and it's a hand fan. And I was so happy to see these because I've only, I uh, worked as a musician in the black church, and the black church, African-American churches, are the only places I've ever seen these fans. But now I've found, uh, you don't look like the pastor of a black church, Dan, at least, I don't know. Uh, but here's a, a non-black church that has picked up one of the great gifts of the black church, which is the hand fan. And uh, in the black church, they're like part of the liturgy. Like you, you almost are required to have one to fully participate because at some point as the pastor really gets going, people pick up their fans and start, it's like you, a multi-purpose tool. But it starts out because most of these churches couldn't afford air conditioning. And it's way more effective to fan yourself with a hand fan, right, than just with your hand. In fact, I've always wondered if I fan myself just with my hand, am I actually, is this working? Like, because I'm expending energy, I'm getting hotter, fanning, I'm not sure it works. But I do think a hand fan moves enough air efficiently enough that I can get cool. Very simple tools. Now, they go all the way up to complex things like plows and, you know, screwdrivers and whatever. But about 100 years ago, someone had an idea. Let's go with fans first, then we'll talk about hammers. What if, instead of you having to fan yourself, something would fan you? That is, what if I could plug something into the wall, say, once we have electricity, and it activates a motor, and the motor turns a fan, and you can point it at you, and now you don't have to fan yourself. It, it just blows nice air right on you. That sounds pretty cool. This is similar to the hand fan in that it's, it's accomplishing that mission of moving a lot of air by you quickly to, to cool you off, but the difference is you don't have to use it. It just works on its own. And the shift from things we have to use to things that work on, them, on their own is the basic shift of technology. Things that require a human being to operate them or be involved in using them are tools. But there's, some, there's this new development. It's only about 100-ish years that we've had these things. Things that automatically or autonomously operate. And the word I want to use for these, borrowing from a philosopher named Albert Borgman, is devices. So the technological transition is the transition from tools that always required persons to operate them. Sorry, this, this tool is a little faint uh, in, in what it's allowing me to project. Um, the, 
it's the transition from things that we had to use to things that just provide things for us. Now, we could take this further. It's kind of inconvenient to have to plug in the fan and point it toward yourself. So what if we made better technology? What would count as better technology in the world of fans? Well, it would be a fan that you never had to plug in, that just always was ready to go if you needed it. And then what if you could just tell it what temperature you wanted, and then whatever temperature you needed, it would arrange, arrange to blow either hot or cold air to, to make you that temperature. Well, this would be called an HVAC system, heating, ventilating, air conditioning, and we could build it into the building. I don't know if there's one in here or not. I see some vents, right? And behind these vents are invisible fans that activate whenever we need them. We never have to think about it at all. In fact, I had to look to even see the tiny signs that there might be an HVAC system in this building. And um, it just operates all by itself without us having to think about it. We just tell it 72 degrees, please, and it, it works. And that's higher technology than the fan you have to plug in. Like, I think we instinctively feel like, oh, that's better technology. And the direction the technology is going is from devices, I put this line here because this is a big dividing line in human history. For all of human history, we, all, we lived above the line. For 100 years, we've started living below the line. But actually what we want is not just devices. We want devices that without us even have to think about it, they work. And the word I've come up or the phrase I've come up with for this is easy everywhere. The promise of technology is easy everywhere. Anything you want to get done will develop a whole system, not even just a device anymore, but a whole system that will do it for you wherever you need it done, however it works. This happened right with um, telecommunications, for example, with the, initially the telephone. So the, the telephone is already a device. It transmits your voice without you having to shout. Um, but think about how the telephone got better and better uh, over time. It starts out where you have to actually go to a thing wired into the wall. I, re I realize most people in this room have no memory of this. But I remember as a child of the 80s, when I needed to talk to Janet, the girl that I spent three hours talking to every night on the phone, the most profound waste of her life and mine in my whole life were these interminable three-hour conversations on the phone. And I had to like drag the phone physically attached to a wire, like an animal, right? You know, to, to a place in the house where we could have a private conversation. Well, then when I was in high school, we got our first cordless phone. And what is the cordless doing? It's giving you more everywhere than you had before with your telecom. And, and it's making it easier to just take that phone into another room. Well, now, of course, we carry telecom around with us all the time. Same thing then happened with the internet. You used to have to go onto the internet. Do your grandparents say this, I'm going to go online? You're like, why do you have to go? Like, it's everywhere. It's like floating through the air now. It's, it's just available. And that's how technology works. It starts out, you have to adjust your life to it. It eventually adjusts to you, and it's just available whenever you need it. Now, what's the hammer version of this, just to make sure we get the concept? Uh, it is clearly the thing that every red-blooded American male wants in his garage, and some red-blooded American females probably want in their garage too, which is a nail gun, right? Yes, right? So the problem with the hammer is it requires skill, and it's tiring to use, okay? So the hammer is a very simple tool, but it actually requires a certain amount of skill, and if you use it for any period of time, if you're not used to it, you'll get tired. What if I could give you something that you could just hold it against whatever needed to be nailed, and like pull the trigger, and 
nails, like so fast, so precise, uh, just each one at the right angle, you know, and you put in very little effort. It's a nail device, a hammering device. What would be the high technology version of the nail gun? Like, what's the easy everywhere version? What I'm picturing, I don't know if we have this yet, I'm picturing the nail gun Roomba. Okay, right? You know the Roomba, the vacuum? So I'm picturing, like, you need to roof your house. Instead of you having to go up there with a nail gun, let alone a hammer, right? You actually just program the nail gun Roomba and you're down on the ground watching it go and you'd be like, this is amazing, right? This is like the ultimate technological way of nailing things because it's doing it on its own, it's doing it easily, it's doing it wherever you want it to. That's, that's the direction technology goes. Now, this sounds good, right? Sounds like you'd want it. Like who here would not sign up for a nail gun Roomba once they offer one? I just think it sounds awesome. There's only one problem. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's not a problem, you, you, you decide. But when you use a hammer, you develop skill. When you use a hammer, you develop strength. When you use a hammer, you're involved in a kind of exciting, meaningful way with the world, at least if you enjoy hammering. Um, and when you use a device or when a device works on your behalf, it doesn't develop any skill in you doesn't develop any capacities or strength in you. In fact, it doesn't ask anything of you. So while it gives you this wonderful disengagement, like I can just watch the Roomba vacuum, watch the Roomba nail gun do its thing, let the HVAC do its thing, I never have to think about it, it also leaves you nothing to do. Let me illustrate this with one more sequence for you because this is the key idea that we have to understand. This is such a revolution in human life that we no longer have to have skill to live in the world. <laughs> this is a big deal. It's, it's changed everything in 100 years. And what has it changed? Well, think about transportation for a moment. So how you get from place to place. Um, not that long ago, if you wanted to go a distance farther than you could easily walk, the only real option was a horse. And think about what it's like to ride a horse. Um, I, I have, don't... I don't surf and I rarely ride horses, but I was in Wyoming two summers ago on a ranch and got to ride horses. It's an unbelievably powerful experience to step up to this huge fellow creature, look into its eyes, think or say, you could kill me if you don't like do your job right. <laughs> and I don't know, really know how to ride you. That's the other thing I said to my horse. <laughs> and then get up on the horse and head out into the hills. It's a very, it it's a, requires a lot of you as a person, and it gives you a lot as a person. Horseback riding is an amazing, like, personal experience, I would say. Well, about 100 years ago, we started replacing horses with things that give us sequentially more easy everywhere. We invented the transportation device. But early on, these early cars were a lot like tools. That is to say, they required a lot of us to maintain them. They actually required strength to operate them. Um, they broke down a lot, so we had to repair them, and often the owner would repair them. So you were actually still very involved. And in, and in fact, they were also very beautiful, so you wanted to be involved with them. There are guys who are still like living out their dreams maintaining these cars, because they were quite remarkable things. Uh, not maybe remarkable in the same way a horse is, but still pretty amazing. Um, and 
you, you, by the way, would see your, your father often, uh, usually it was the father, I suppose, working on the car, and you'd see your dad exercising skill and knowing how to make this thing work. And also, when it didn't work, I learned language from my father that I didn't learn any other time, except out in the driveway watching him work on the old cars that he wanted our family to have. Um, so very, still pretty engaging of you, still requiring a lot of you, but as cars get better, what happens? Well. Um, they get more and more self-contained, more and more self-propelled. We add power steering, so you no longer have to like actually turn the steering wheel arduously. You just sort of flick it one direction or the other and it goes, right? We now no longer require you to turn a key. My goodness, that's way too much effort. Like just press a button and it'll start. And I choose the Tesla not only because it's battery powered, but really because it's like the ultimate example so far of a computer on wheels, right? And think about the difference between the mechanical car and the computational car. You, you, an ordinary human being, can learn so much about the mechanical car, but the computational car is very opaque. It's very hard to know what's going on in there. And there's not much you can do with it except get it to go wherever you want it to go. We, got, we did not get a Tesla. That's, we're saving our money for the next 15 years for that. But um, we got a new car. It's a, like a Ford C-Max, it's like a hybrid car. Uh, three years ago, and my daughter was 16, so I wanted to like, have her have the experience that I had had with my dad of like, being shown how cars work. So I take Amy out to show her around our new car. I'm like, so Amy, dad will show you uh, how this works, so let's pop the hood here. So we open it up. Well, this... Uh, big plastic thing covers the engine. And this blue place is where you put the windshield wiper fluid in. And we're done. <laughs> That's it. Like there's nothing to show her. It's all covered up. It's all little computer chips in there anyway. I mean, my dad taught me how a carburetor works. He taught me how to clean and tune a carburetor. There is no carburetor in my car. It's a little chip that adjusts the fuel mixture all the time. It's a device, nothing for me to do. Works great. I love this car as, as a device, but it, it's not a tool anymore. It just works on its own. And it wasn't very impressive for my daughter. And think about how, as we entered this technological age, something changed in the relationship between children and parents and what it was like to be at home. Because it was once the case that you saw your parents doing things that required strength and skill and having learned things and having developed capacities. And now a three-year-old can press a button the same way that a 30-year-old can. So you used to watch your dad, maybe, maybe it was your dad working on the car, maybe your mom was in the kitchen cooking a meal. But now if the meal just comes out of the freezer and goes in the microwave, there's nothing to watch, nothing to see, nothing to admire. So maybe children stopped respecting and admiring their parents when their parents started, stopped, stopped doing things that were respectable or admirable. And we all now are just button pushers at home rather than actually tending and creating in the world with skill and courage and strength. And of course, the story is not over because eventually <laughs> we're going to provide you, at least we're trying, a driverless car. Now it's not, this one has been discontinued and won't be made, but it's cute, and the key thing about it is you can't do anything to it. It doesn't have a steering wheel, doesn't have brakes, you don't operate it in any way, and what it's going to provide is easy transportation everywhere, easy everywhere. You won't be involved at all, and the first time you ride in a driverless car, 
you will think, this is amazing. I can't believe this is happening. This is utopia. It's, it pulled up to, the, to my house. It's taking me where I want to go. I don't have anyth anything to do. And all the rest of your drives, the rest of your life, you'll get in and it'll be the most boring experience of your life. You'll be like, where is the Netflix? You'll be so desperate for something to do because there is nothing for you to do in a driverless car except get the thing you want, which is get from place to place. Boredom. The state of being weary and restless through a lack of interest, as in the boredom of a long car trip where you're not the driver and maybe one day there is no driver. When did the word boredom come into the English language? 1853. There is no word for boredom before 1853 in English or in any other language. There's this French word, ennui, that now means to be kind of just feel like life is tedious. But it didn't mean that back before the 19th century. It meant, uh, it meant sort of uh, annoyance or frustration. It wasn't until we started having things that worked on their own that we got bored. Because there, was n there is less and less for us to do as human beings. This is the technological revolution. With all of its benefits, its cost has been the disengagement of us from, from action and skill in the world. Our devices have replaced our tools. Easy everywhere will replace our devices. And as we do, we get more and more bored. Now, the good news is we have these glowing rectangles to distract us. But the problem is that the more you are distracted by things, the more borable you become. The more you distract yourself, the more easily bored you are. So actually, it's not a solution at all. We're now the most bored, distractible people in history, also for related reasons, I suppose, the most lonely. And we're missing out on what it is to be human, even as we live the easiest lives that human beings have ever lived. There's another way. What's that other way? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6 is the heart of the law. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was one of the only times he gave the answer everyone would expect. He quoted the same thing any Jewish rabbi would said with his greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he did a very Jesus-like thing and he added something. So he actually changed the Shema Israel, the thing that every faithful Jew wakes up every morning saying, he added a phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Jesus adds all your mind. And then he, and then he continues with the text, all your might or all your strength. I actually think this is a clue to what it is to be a person, to what we're meant to be as persons. What is it to be a human being? I think it is to be a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex, designed for love. You are, every person in this room is, I am, we are, heart, soul, mind, strength, complexes. That is, a complex is like a, a set of things that can't be taken apart without destroying the thing. And yet you can tell the difference, but they, they all go together. 
you are a heart, soul, mind, strength complex, and you're made for a specific purpose, which is love, to love God, and then Jesus adds, love your neighbor, which means you're not a brain without a body, you're not a mind without a soul, you're not a soul without a heart. I mean, you can run all the combinations. You're not a body without a soul. You are a combination of heart, soul, mind, and strength designed for love. The key question is, as this technological tsunami has swept in, have we become more or less able to love with heart, soul, mind, and strength? Has technology helped us to get closer to this vision of the greatest commandment, the greatest human flourishing possible? And I think it's really hard to say that it has. Think about strength just to start. Uh, I met a really amazing guy. His name is Stephen Marland. He uh, coaches the University of Wisconsin rowing team. He's an athletic trainer at a very high level. He used to work for the Golden State Warriors, now coaches rowers. And he said something very interesting to me about athletic training. Um, not because I am one of his key clients, uh, as you can probably tell, but uh, we were having a great conversation about like training and what it means to really develop the human body to its maximum potential. And he said, it's interesting, the human body is designed to move in three planes. Do you know this? The anatomical planes, the sagittal plane, the coronal plane, and the transverse plane. Uh, coronal is this one, transverse is this one, sagittal is this one. So it means you are meant to move and torque in three dimensions. You're meant to move back and forth, side to side, and up and down, right? And then you're meant to bend in all those as well. And most athletic training neglects one of those dimensions. And the worst thing we ever came up with for athletic training was these uh, machines that people love to get on and, and do at the gym. Because what the machine does is it fixes your muscle to move only in one plane. So you're like, oh, I'm doing the curls, this is great. This is actually terrible. Because <laughs> you're neglecting all the ancillary muscles that are designed to move your, your, uh, any limb in all those dimensions. So what he does is he trains athletes to develop all these planes. And I started thinking, my gosh, how, it would actually be interesting to ask. So when you think about the last 24 hours, did you have to do something as part of your daily work? If you're a student, it's st studying. If you're uh, working at home, it's whatever you do at home. If you work in a an office job, how many of you had to um, ha have, a, have a daily job that requires you to move and torque in all three planes of the human body? I see maybe five, six hands in the room. So the five or six of you are the only ones who are living as full human beings. <laughs> How many of you, your main job is in front of a screen? Many more hands. Do you know how many planes you use in your body when you are in front of a screen? No planes. <laughs> you are a T-Rex. You are typing. Your, your arms are becoming atrophied. You are not moving. Your strength is not being used. And what does God say to Israel? Love the Lord your God with all your strength. This implies that you could love God with just a little strength. No, God wants you to develop maximum capacity, whatever your body's capacity is, it's part of human flourishing that you develop that. And we have developed a whole technological system that prevents most of us, especially in our daily life and work, from developing all of our strength. So the lucky ones, the affluent ones, get to go to CrossFit, <laughs> where we'll make you do all that stuff. Uh, but a lot of people don't have time or money 
uh, and they work in jobs that really do not develop their strength. Does the technological world develop all of my heart? Does it develop depth of soul? Does it, what is soul, by the way? I did not really know what soul was until I apprenticed in the black church. <laughs> I'm a musician, and uh, so it's my job to play music. And I knew how to play music technically, but I did not know how to play with soul until I apprenticed in the black church and learned that I, had, I knew how to play from the neck up. <laughs> and I knew how to sing from the neck up, but I did not know how to sing from the depth of me. And soul is depth of self. Is technology helping you become deeper in yourself, your soul? Is it helping you access the deepest pain in your life, the deepest capacity for joy in your life? How many of us would say, oh yes, the more devices I have in my life, the more profound soulness I have? No way. Is it even helping our minds? Of course, technology does a lot of amazing things for us mentally, cognitively. But are we becoming sharper, more creative, more insightful, more wise? Absolutely not. What's the remedy for this? It's actually right here in the text. And it has, I think, a couple of dimensions. And one is this really interesting uh, thing that follows the great commandment. What are we supposed to do? Keep these words in your heart. So you're actually going to let these words of God sink into your, your seat of your emotions and your will. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and you're away. When you lie down and when you rise, I actually think there's movement in several anatomical planes built into Deuteronomy 6. You're going to be lying down in bed. Then you're going to get up and move through the world. And as you go out and as you come in, you're going to be thinking, you're going to be using your mind to think about these things. And then you're actually going to physically, in, in, uh, on, on your hand and on your forehead and on the doorposts as you come in and out, you're going to physically remind yourself of them so that it actually shows you how to heart, soul, mind, and strength develop yourself. Does that make sense? What if this is our task as the church? To help people develop their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, all oriented towards love of God. I think there's two things we would spend a lot more time doing once we realize that technology is not helping us do this, and it never will. Technology will never form you in this way because it works for you. It doesn't make you do anything. It doesn't form you. Instead, we'd start to build, uh, the word I want to use is households. Ch recite these to your children. Uh, for, when you're going away, when you're uh, coming home, we would build households of people who are actually together discovering what it is to love God with heart, heart, mind, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we will never do this if technology is doing the living for us. So this is why, I, while I want to talk about how this applies to the church in a moment, and I'm getting near the end, by the way, in case you're wondering, and we'll have some conversation, uh, but not before I make you do something vulnerable, so just get ready. I'm going to have, actually have you have us all do a heart, soul, mind, strength thing together in a second. I actually think the TechWise Church starts with the TechWise household. We need to be every day waking up in a place and going to bed in a place that helps us live full-hearted lives, fully-souled lives, all of our mind, all of our strength oriented towards love. And that's not gonna just happen in a church building. 
That needs to happen in whatever place we live. I don't just mean nuclear families. I don't just mean biological families. I mean wherever you live in intimate connection with other people, that we need to make that the kind of place where we are living heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is why one of the things I recommend in the TechWise family is candlelight dinners. Because when you, so one of our devices is electric light, right? Easy light everywhere. But when you turn it off and you light a candle or a few candles, something amazing happens in a family or in a household. Uh, I have, if you've ever had like a power outage and, and you have to light the candles, you discover this. Like for the first few minutes, you're very uncomfortable. And then you're like, this is actually quite amazing. This is cool. We have a different kind of conversation. So in our family, we have every dinner by candlelight. This is not my family, this is not our family. Um, and the other benefit of it is as you age, your spouse suddenly regains the glow of youth uh, across the table. You're like, oh, you're so lovely. And you know, just like I, I remember you. <laughs> and it's very romantic, but the kids love it. And you, you linger around the table because you're not just sort of sitting under electric light. You're sitting with these beautiful glowing things, not the glowing rectangles, but the glowing candles. So we've been challenging people to do this as part of the TechWise family. And one of them, uh, one family did it. It's the Fowler family, and they put this on Twitter. We, we're not against technology. We just want you to use, use technology to tell us how you're getting rid of technology. And uh, so he, uh, one of the things I encourage people to do is actually take all of Sunday as a day free from technology. So Sunday night, Simon posted this, uh, the next day, he posted this um, picture, and here's what he tweeted. He said, our family did quite well for our first serious attempt at making Sunday a device-free day. We took the challenge to have an electricity-free evening, and that led to a game of cards, which led to a Bible study led, to, led by my 14-year-old, a bit of worship, and then an early night to bed. <laughs> Let me read this again. Does this sound like just a normal night in America? A game of cards, which led to a Bible study led by my 14-year-old, a bit of worship, and then we all went to bed and had a good night's sleep all because, in one way, they turned off the devices, had to entertain themselves, and suddenly the 14-year-old's like, well, I could lead Bible study tonight, rather than looking for the Bible study device, like, we can do this, right? Imagine if this was the life of every household in your church. Imagine how different this family is going to come to church on Sunday, the next Sunday, than one that put on something on the TV and watched it all night. As much as I have opinions about what this technology, uh, this tech-wise life means for the church, it really does start with these households. And by the way, um, this family has two daughters. I, I know them a little bit. But there are, uh, there's the mom, two daughters, but there's a, a fourth person in this picture who's not the dad. And they've actually included a member of their church who, uh, whose husband uh, left her a few years ago. And she's now as much a part of their family as their kids. So when I say household, I don't just mean your little, your little family. I mean whoever needs to be included, bring them in, live together, do things together, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And really beautiful things will start to happen. It will change our churches if we live this way at home. This does, however, have implications for worship. I'm gonna talk about it quite quickly here so that we can get on to discussion. Um, Essentially, the, the biggest opportunity we're missing, I think, uh, the one thing I would want us to think about is how are we using our bodies in worship? How many planes do you move through uh, on Sunday or whenever you worship at Vintage Faith here or wherever your church is? Uh, in many churches, it's not many planes and not very much. There's two groups that do it better than most. It's the liturgicals and the Pentecostals. 
<laughs> so Pentecostal worship is a full body experience. That is a heart, soul, mind, strength, like real Pentecostals. Now there's kind of leftover Pentecostals who have gotten much more respectable. But when you go to like a real Pentecostal church, you are drawn in, you have to bring your emotion, you are using your mind and there's teaching of the word and so forth, but it's totally bodily. You're expected to move, you're expected maybe to jump up and down, fall down, whatever. Like that's what God does, he, he works with all of you. And then if you, that sounds uncomfortable, come with me to the Anglican church where my family goes, <laughs> where we also move through all three planes in the course of worship. We get out of the pew, we go down to receive communion, we kneel down, we reach out to one another when we pass the peace, which is this awkward thing, but it does add a plane of motion, so I thought I would include it. Um, and, and it's actually great for kids because they're, they're involved. It's not just sing, 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 listen, 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 sing, sing, sing. It's like, do this, now do this, now cross yourself, now make these motions with your bodies that embed in your strength while you're using your heart and your soul and your mind as well. In fact, what if we used a heart, soul, mind, strength, love evaluation for every event? <laughs> Everything we do as a, as a church, if we ask, does this touch emotions? We should be able to answer how it affects the heart. Does it acknowledge the depth of soul in every human being, the depth of human joy and suffering? Did we touch that somehow? Did this challenge the mind? Did this engage the body? And did this convey and inspire love? The interesting thing is, if you want to build something that answers that in the affirmative, technology will be of no real value to you. It might not hurt. You could use it to amplify what's done. There's all kinds of ancillary ways, but technology will not engage the heart, soul, mind, strength, or provoke love. It's just, it just is a, a little helper in the background. Let's try something then I'll say like one last thing and then we'll talk. Let's actually try a heart, soul, mind, strength activity, if you don't mind. What I'd like you to do, uh, we're gonna sing a familiar song, um, Amazing Grace, I hope you know it. Not the new version with the verse that allows them to claim royalty rights every time people sing Amazing Grace, uh, but the, uh, the old version, uh, the old tune that's copyright free and so there's no CCL li license required. Um, what I want us to do is actually start out singing this in the most consumeristic position possible, which is the couch potato position. So not all of us are on couches, but you guys on the couch, please, please make yourself comfortable. Hope that there's something good on it. All the rest of us, as much as you can, just sort of slouch back, like just sort of enter torpor, feel a little bored. Hope there's gonna be some distraction coming sometime. Mm -hmm. I'd like us just to sing in the most consumeristic way possible, the first line or so of this. Amazing grace, how sweet. Uh, yeah, okay, that's enough of that, all right. Now, let's just sit up and sit away from the back of the chair so that your, the upper part of your body is just nice and straight. And let's just do it again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Okay, so did you hear the difference? Obviously quite a difference. Now, let's just stand up. And as you stand, just plant your feet right under your shoulders, just comfortable, shoulder width apart. And let's try it again. We just moved from sitting to standing. Let's try it again. Amazing grace. 
How sweet the sound. Now, did you hear what changed? Just changing sitting to standing. The, the voices got much more resonant. They came together in quite an amazing way. One more step, and that's uh, relaxation and breathing. So uh, your body is meant to be a resonating cavity for your voice. And the more tight things are, the less it can resonate. It's all sort of cramped, right? So relaxation is a really important part of being able to produce that, that full sound that you're meant to produce. So let's start by just rolling our heads around very gently. Please, no injuries. Uh, we don't have insurance for this, so just whatever's comfortable, but just sort of loosening up those neck muscles, then roll your shoulders a little bit around forwards and backwards. Maybe shake your hands out a little bit, let the tension come out of your hands. And then if you want extra credit relaxation, this neck uh, apparatus, or sorry, this jaw apparatus often holds a lot of tension. So if you relax your jaw fully, what you're able to do is hold your chin and move it up and down with no resistance like this. Can you do it? <laughs> Most of you are discovering this is, this is where you hold that text message that you're not sure if you should respond to. This is where you hold that argument you had with your dad last night. Like it's all in the jaw. And if you relax it, so just do all those relaxation motions at once for a moment. And then what we're gonna do, now that we're a little more relaxed, we're gonna breathe and you're gonna feel for your, your rib cage. And as much as possible, it's in there somewhere, I promise. And as much as possible, Expand the lungs, expand the rib cage so your lungs just have room so that your breath when it comes is gonna come from down here, not just sort of chest breath, but all the way down. Just take a couple deep breaths, don't force it, just nice, gentle, full breaths with your ribs expanded. And you're relaxed. And now let's sing it again. Mm -hmm. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Twas blind, but now I see. Wow. Let's sing one more verse. Add some harmony. When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first What did we just do? We took just a moment to develop ourselves 
with our strength to focus our minds. Maybe it touched a little bit of our souls. Pretty white crowd. We'll have to keep working on the soul part. And maybe it awakened in us um, the emotion, the heart that comes from doing something beautiful together. And I still have my mic on. I should have just taken it off. I wish I'd thought of that. But other than that, it was just us. It was amazing. This is what we can do. This is who we can be. If we want church to endure, we really need to resist the tsunami in this way. We are just not going to care about easy everywhere because it's not going to help us become the people we want to be. So instead, we're going to form households. We're going to shape worshiping communities that everything they do is designed to develop all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and direct all of it towards love. If we do this, we'll be set free of technological anxiety. Is our, are our slides cool enough? Is our fog machine foggy enough? Are the lasers lasery enough? We'll be offering something so different to the world. There is nowhere in Santa Cruz, California, you can experience what we just experienced in that way, except among people who are willing to offer themselves in that way to God and one another. It'll be so different from the world because we will be different people with new capacities. And that is a church that we can hand on, I think, to our children's children, whatever waves come and go in the world around us. So thank you so much for your time and attention so far. I'm really grateful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.